Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, because, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. If you have been with us for a number of weeks, you will know that we have been studying the book of Hebrews. Uh, We have now made it to the 12th chapter, and uh, we just read last week a number of different scenarios, environments, stories, narratives, if you will, of those who've come before, those who are the patriarchs of old, those who were the founders of the faith. And the Hebrew writer engages with those those stories in such a way as to uh, examine their mode of obedience. Josiah, if you can bring me down just a little bit, that would help. I'm uh, high-frequency buzzing. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, in Hebrews 12, he moves on from the context. One of the things that you'll see in your, in your Bibles is as you read them, sometimes the chapter breaks are... You know, they're, they're in an inconvenient location. And one of the mighty aspects here is that he says in verse 1 of this chapter, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We read that and we think, okay, those are arbitrary people. There's some sort of mystical um, fellowship by which we are somewhat at one with the, the saints who've come before. But what the writer is saying is that these people who've come before, of whom we have a faithful record in the scriptures, they are for us tutors or, or people by which we would emulate, they're role models, if you will, they're mentors of how the faith works. That is, how, were, how was Abraham able to obey? How was Noah able to obey? They were able to obey by faith, and that faith was not contextualist, uh, or it was not contextless, it was contextful. It was faith in God, namely in his person, and therefore also in his word. And faith in God and faith in God's word is really the, the main point of this letter. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that the Hebrew writer's aim is to warn these Christians against apostasy and turning away from the gospel and reverting into some strange mode of Judaism. Now, when we say reverting into Judaism, we do not mean at all the true worship of Yahweh because the the New Testament teaches that those who truly worship Yahweh receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's what Jesus himself says in the Gospels. If you loved the Father, you would come to me. And so we're not saying that the the warning here for the Hebrews in reverting back to Judaism is is some sort of old option B or plan B by which they could have continued to relate to God. No, when Christ came in the incarnation as the Messiah, he changed what it meant for the external following of Yahweh. And that external following of Yahweh was uh, uniquely identified in the person, ministry, and work of Jesus Christ and the changes that he installed in the switching of the administrations between the covenants, which we've studied in great detail in the past few chapters. Over and over again, the contrast in this book is between the earthly temple, which is passing away, it's ready to be set, it's set aside and it's ready to fade and vanish away, versus the new heavenly temple. And the writer says, therefore, because we as the church have been engrafted into this group of people, this cloud of witnesses, we ought to behave in a certain manner. And that manner of behavior, he says, ought to be informed by the spiritual reality which exists now in the church. One of the things that I think is so beautiful is the writer wonderfully weaves a tapestry throughout the entire Old Covenant scriptures showing that what was made, what was done in the Old Covenant scriptures, those events, those stories, those narratives, were merely shadows and types of what's come. And now, he says, we've come to the reality. This is so important to see because this reality, this kingdom which cannot be shaken, arrived at Christ 
ministry. He said, behold, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He brought his kingdom with him, installed it, and now it's growing like, like a mountain which grows to fill the whole earth. And so here we're arriving at the close and the Hebrew writer kind of summarizes everything that he's been talking about and how it informs behavior in the church. So first I want to look at his command to look to Christ in the context of what we've seen last week in Hebrews 11 with the the heroes of the faith. I want to look at the aspect of discipline as a mark of assurance This is what spiritual maturity is all about, is beginning to recognize the things which don't seem pleasant as actually confidence building, something that should cause you to to be joyful. You know, be joyful or or be happy when when various trials and persecutions come among you. That is not, that's not earthly wisdom. That's heavenly wisdom. Here he says a very similar thing. So uh, a command to zeal after this. I want to look at this as uh, understanding that although we do not create spiritual energy by which we might obey God, but rather everything is for the glory of God, that is, all of your obedience is powered by the Holy Spirit's grace, but you are commanded to participate with it. Now, I'm not saying that you are an originator of that grace or else you would get some sort of glory, but rather you are told to live in step with the truth that is God is favorably disposed to you and that he is radically committed to your holiness. And the reason for that holiness, as as the writer says, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the reason for that holiness is because the new covenant is a greater reality with more strict and more severe chastisements for those who neglect the covenant. Most Christians work their way backwards, whereas the scripture works its way forwards. They argue down from the new covenant that the new covenant is more gracious, is more tolerant of lackadaisical worship, more uh, com- uh, accommodating to those who are spiritually backsliders than the old covenant was when actually the Bible reasons the other direction as we can see here, that's probably my main point today, is to to once and all deliver you from the mindset of, well, I can continue in sin because we're in grace and this would allow me to, you know, persist in God. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, I am not saying that if you sin later this afternoon that God has removed his grace from you, but you should not entertain strategies of the devil which render you ineffective but do no damage to your spiritual destiny, those ideas which cause you to persist in unrepentant sin. Now, it it can be the case, as has been argued throughout this letter, that those who continue in sin, unrepentant, uh, not making any war against it, are actually judging themselves as outside the covenant. But that's not his aim in this chapter. Therefore, we must take heed all the more to the warning that is available. I want to look at the true Mount Zion as it's demonstrated to be a spiritual assembly, the ecclesia, which we'll see the, the word where, which we get church from. That word is talking about an assembly, a gathering, which the Hebrew writer has, says has already come. Now that's a very important fact. And then finally, we're going to look at the nature of God as a consuming fire. So we saw last week how we were told to emulate not just the patriarchs of the faith in their obedience, but we were told to emulate them in the manner of their obedience. It is not as if the, the gospel walk is just one in which you, you know, grit your teeth, you, uh, you, know, you muster a bunch of energy within yourself, and then begin to obey out of your own strength. Rather, you are commanded to obey, but you're commanded to obey in a particular manner. For whatever is not of faith is of sin. And so even your external obedience, should you fulfill the letter of the law, you would not be fulfilling it internally. Christ does not just go to the cross begrudging the whole way. And that's what the the Hebrew writer commands us. He says, you've seen the patriarchs. You've seen all of the, the models of their faith. Now I want you to look at the way that Christ exhibited faith in his trials. These great feats that they did 
did, they did through their trust, and they did these great feats by looking forward to the one who would fulfill God's promises. Where they looked forward to Christ, we now look backwards in terms of time to Christ. They did not come into the assembly apart from us, as the end of chapter 11 says, but rather that we now together as one new people, the true ecclesia of God, have been inaugurated into the assembly of the firstborn. That is namely Jesus Christ. Verse one, he says to examine that and put away sin. And he says how to do that. This is a participle which describes how we are to put away sin and let us run the race. We are to do that by looking to Christ. The spiritual walk, the the walk which you are commanded to do, it, it necessarily involves engaging your mind in the things of the scriptures, to arm yourself with weapons for the moment of temptation. By the mercies of God, present yourself as a worthy sacrifice. By the mercies of God. It doesn't say just to, to grin and bear it, to put it up, to put up your own fight. Your tools are, are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds and every high and lofty thing which exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Those weapons that you are given are the scriptures. They're not just trite Christian ideas. You don't just walk into uh, family Christian bookstores, look around the room and see all the different slogans and then memorize those as if, you know, let go and let God won't help you when you're dealing with facing cancer. You know, what I'm saying is the mercies of God are contained in means and those, the chief means by which you should be fighting is not just the Holy Spirit's presence, although that is mighty and powerful and wonderful. In no way do I wish to malign the active presence of the Holy Spirit, but the active presence of the Holy Spirit is something that you don't just land in in the moment of temptation or trial. You can't cultivate a great relationship with God in the, in the hour of the flood. You have to create levees in your mind and heart. You have to create uh, avenues. It's, it, the scripture says that blessed is the man in whose heart is the pathway to Zion, the Zion that we're talking about. Do you have avenues which you've established in your life? I believe that this is a command to consider Christ in the Gospels. Not just to consider Christ as you've seen him in a movie, but to consider Christ as he's presented to us in the historic presentation in the Gospels. So we are to look to Christ, we are to emulate Christ, and we are to arm our mind, not just with the Gospels, but also with the writings of the epistles. The various apostles who wrote letters also reveal Christ. The book of Revelation is not some sort of apocalyptic unveiling at the future time, but rather the unveiling which was given to John the Revelator then. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So we ought to consider Jesus. We ought to meditate upon him and emulate his manner of obedience. Christ went to the cross a faith-filled believer that God would justify the righteous and he would no, by no means condemn him because he was not guilty. That is how Christ trusts in the Father. And Christ, as a loving husband, and I, I, I think it's right, even though that metaphor is somewhat veiled in this chapter, to bring it out that Christ, for the joy set before him, went to the cross despising the shame, that he had a real encounter between the shame which was going on in, in the physical and the social context of his crucifixion, uh, as well as the pain and the agony, the, the bodily suffering, but he was able to have a tension in his heart and mind as he goes to the cross. The vehicle or the avenue by which Christ maintained faithfulness at the cross was by dwelling on and meditating on the joy that was set before him, which was primarily the pleasure of his father, which he knew he was obeying the father's will, but secondarily, and I think super important, was the joy of knowing that he was purchasing for himself a bride. And in purchasing himself a bride, he not only calls her, he not only chooses her, but he also sanctifies her and washes her. He himself offers up the very thing which is going to sanctify the bride. I believe that's what it's talking about 
Not only the joy of being at the right hand, although I think that's included, not only the joy of pleasing the Father, but the joy of purchasing those who he wishes to love. And so we see this motivational conflict in Christ in great detail. This is what it means for the Hebrew writer to say, consider Jesus, engage your mind in thinking about how the God-man was a faithful example of what it means to worship Yahweh, to worship Yahweh in spirit and truth through his actions. Christ in the moment is calling to mind the joy, and that allows him to persevere in the midst of persecution. That's what this whole letter is about. It's a letter written to a church, a group of people, a group of Christians who were facing persecution externally as well as doctrinally, those who were physically persecuting them and those who were oppressing them by trying to come into the church and teach a foreign doctrine that you need to add circumcision because Christ is not enough. These sorts of Judaizing teachings were forms of persecution that the church had to weather. And they were able to weather them by looking to the scriptures and looking to the historic experience of Christ. Though Christ on the cross was rejected by the people and hung naked, being uh, exposed to public humiliation and shame, he would soon be robed in majesty in the triumphal entry at the heavenly throne room and take a seat at the right hand. If you don't think that Christ had that in mind at the cross, I would submit to you that you don't understand what Christ's motivation is. That's really how he was able to survive what is a horrific, unthinkable um, amount of physical pain, not, not just the agony that takes place in the spirit as he's rejected by the people and cast out as a scapegoat, not just as he bears the wrath of the Father, but even those included, but also the physical torment and, and scourging that Christ went through, he was only able to do that because of, he, because of his trust in the Father. And you are called to persevere in the faith like him. If you want to be a Christian, you will suffer and you must take hold of the one pristine example, mentor, uh, experience or, or person by whom you can emulate that sort of trust. You are called to engage your mind and heart in meditating upon Jesus Christ. From this, we know that we ought to strive towards holiness, and the writer calls us to crucify the flesh. He says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's not saying that the Christians who are facing persecution ought to take up arms to dispel those who are attacking them. He's talking about an ongoing spiritual battle in which they have not yet resisted until they achieve victory. I don't think this is merely hyperbole, although I think it is talking about a way of fighting that is foreign to us, that it's worth dying over, that your holiness, your defeat over those things which plague you, your ability to cast down those commonly hindering sins, what we call besetting sins or persistent sins, those things ought to be pursued with war that you should make war against your sin. That's what it means to shed blood. That's what shedding blood is, it's war. You should make war on your sin in order to uh, attain to the holiness without which we will not see the Lord. The writer quotes from Proverbs and he encourages his readers with the knowledge that their discipline, the things that they're suffering, the things including their ongoing besetting sins which are coming against them are being done for a particular purpose. Right now, I want to just briefly discuss the difference between punishment and discipline. Speaking very precisely, punishment does not have a goal in mind other than establishing justice. We do not have a legal system which uh, sets up justice in any means. Our, our law system in the United States is quite deficient in a number of manners. However, it, there is one manner which we can see something truthful, that lethal uh, execution, that is lethal punishment, is not done for the reform of the criminal. Does that make sense? After the carrying out of a lethal sentence, that criminal has no means of repair. That, that is the final judgment. Basically, the, the judgment handed down from the judge is saying that this act that you have done is worthy of death 
and there's no ability to rehabilitate you. Now, again, I said our judicial system is quite uh, it's quite humanist, it's quite compromised. We don't have the ability to go into all of that, but you can think about it just a little bit in the words that are chosen. For example, the penitentiary system is called the penitentiary system because its aim, the way in which that the, the men of this country, the men and women of this country have begun to look at it, is it's a system which can make the prisoners penitent. It's a, it's a totalizing uh, it's a totalizing system. I don't think that that's appropriate or accurate, but the difference between punishment and discipline is, is vitally important. Punishment is done to mete out justice. Discipline, on the other hand, is order to form structure within you. It's, it's done to cause a young man or a young woman to be called up into maturity. Instruction, that is the establishing of structure within the person, is done by the Lord, and it's done by the Lord with a teleological aim. It has a goal in mind. It has somewhere that it's going. And so you can trust that God's discipline ultimately is your good. And the writer reasons this way from the example of parenting. He says, we had human fathers and we respected them. How much more, that's the same form of argument as we'll see in a minute, how much more should we respect and adhere to and receive the discipline of the Lord, who not only is wise, but has our holiness in mind. Verse five, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And then I think this verse six is mightily important. It's glorious, it's beautiful. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God's discipline is only applied to those who are his children and I want to stress this. I, as I was preparing last night, I felt the Holy Spirit uh, impress upon me the importance of this idea that there are no children that God loves mildly. You need to hear that, brothers and sisters. Those of you who are young in the faith, who, who constantly feel the temptation from the enemy to think that the Father is displeased with you persistently and that God is just kind of ashamed of you, there are no children that God loves mildly. And his love, which does not at the time seem like love occasionally, is given to you in order for your holiness and your good. Now, in our age, we have a great revolt against even the notion of parental discipline. I would just submit that uh, proof texting is not always wrong. <laughs> Verse 9 says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And then in verse 10, uh, <clears throat> sorry, for verse 11, he says, um, oh no, sorry, verse 9, that exact phrase. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. I would just submit that the writer, who I might think is the Apostle Paul, it doesn't matter if it is Paul or not, the Hebrew writer says that they respect their, their fathers who discipline them. So there, for me, that issue is closed. Um, the very same words that are spoken over Christ are spoken over all of God's children. I want you to understand this, that when the Gospels and the epistles of the New Testament talk about adoption, over and over again, the writers use the phrase that we were adopted in the beloved or adopted to be a part of the beloved, or that in Christ we were elected or in Christ we were adopted. So what this means is, based on the doctrine of the union with Christ, is that when God sees you as his son or daughter, he doesn't see you apart from the work of Christ or apart from the activity of the grace of God. He actually sees you through the lens of his son. That every time that God the Father looks at you and evaluates or judges, are they, are they obeying, are they believing, are they trusting, are they growing, all of that is done within the lens of Jesus Christ. You see, we are told to not regard one another according to the flesh, but only according to the spirit. How much more then does God regard us with regard to our eternal destiny, not our moment by moment behavior or obedience? Although it is important, it is not our assurance. And in fact, this passage says we ought to take assurance when we feel the conviction of sin. Not when we just not not because we sin, but rather because we feel it. <clears throat> Those who never fall under conviction of sin, therefore, are fake sons. Excuse me. Uh, 
I would just submit to you in verse 8 that the word here, especially in the King James, is much uh, more offensive than in the English standard. It, I think it has a better tenor to it. But he says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. Now, what he's saying is all of those who are in the church have, participate, have participated in this discipline, and if you're not experiencing the discipline of God, then you are categorically not within the all that he's talking about. So my question to you today is this, do you regularly feel the conviction of sin? Now, I don't want a show of hands at this point, unless you, unless you are ready to repent on the spot. Um, do you sense the Holy Spirit's displeasure after grieving him? Do you know the difference between the condemnation of the devil and the voice of the Holy Spirit? Do you, when you experience the ongoing effects of sin in your life and see it erupt through horrible things that you yourself do, either through neglect or through commission, do you return to the scriptures or do you just try to put God off for a few hours? And then after eight hours or the next morning, then you're ready to pray. These are the distinguishing marks of Christian response to ongoing sin and non-Christian response to ongoing sin. Does your conscience ever bear witness against you? If you have any reality in the grace of God going on, your conscience should bear witness against you from time to time. Not moment by moment. Brothers and sisters, I am not calling you to the introspection by which you become self-absorbed, but rather, are you convicted of your sin? Do you ever get caught for your sin? This is why I, you know, sometimes I hear people say things like, God was really gracious to me, you know, I was able, I was able to repent from it before the consequences. Never look at that as a sign of God's grace. Don't be happy with the fact that you didn't get caught. Don't be happy. There are greater gifts in God to celebrate and be thankful for. Never console yourself saying, well, it must not be that bad or else I would have gotten in trouble for it. Because if you do not ever receive discipline, you are not a legitimate child. You are an illegitimate child. You are one of the ones that Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ said sneaks into the sheepfold by another way. You're a wolf. You're a, you're a, you're a thief. You're a robber. You're destroying the harmony of the church and you yourself are testifying against your own child, uh, childhood before God. This is what the writer is talking about. He's talking to the church and he's identifying those who might be in it who are, are false believers, false professors. And really that church-wide focus is, is very important, especially for as we go through this chapter. So God's discipline, therefore, is a means by which his grace transforms us to greater glory. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you know what it is like to come out of a season of ongoing unrepentance in a particular area or type of sin to be confronted either by the scriptures or another brother and to make amends? After that, you are led to wonderful paths of green grass and flowing water. You are shepherded into good places. That is what it means to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It means to see some maturation within your walk where you, you see the grace of God being demonstrated in real things, not just in your head, not just in how you think about yourself, but how you are acting, how you are serving your brothers and sisters. So, in light of God's discipline being necessary, we ought to cooperate with the grace of God. Are you fighting against the grace of God? He says in verse 12, therefore, lift, oh, sorry, I skipped verse 12. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, we might be tempted to read these words in this chapter as pertaining to individual holiness alone, but I want you to consider really quickly the context and the words that are chosen here in verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone. Now, if you read that individualistically, you are already probably at peace with yourself. You've made peace with your habits and your proclivities and the things that you're interested in, your hobbies. You're already at peace. So, this can't be done, it can't be fulfilled without being done in the context of a church, in the context of a group of people 
with whom you do life and, and have fellowship. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the, to see the Lord. And then look at this other word, focus. This is not a focus for you, but this is a focus for your neighbor. This is a focus, this is a call to maintain the purity of the church together. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. This is a command to watch over your neighbor. We are called to be our brother's keeper. This is Cain's second sin after killing Abel is then denying the, the grace of God. He, he, he's asked by God, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And God basically doesn't respond directly to that, but he says, yes. You are your brother's keeper. You are called to watch over your brothers and sisters in the faith. Gospel holiness, therefore, is a community project. You ought to be encouraging your brothers and sisters. You, if, especially if you are consumed with uh, things that cause you to become introspective and depressed and discouraged, become other-focused. See what you can do to build up your brothers and sisters. Maybe it takes the form of a physical chore or gift that you give, but most of the time it will probably just be being friends with someone or praying for them or asking them, how are you doing in this area? Establishing friendships, establishing accountability partners, establishing those who you can walk in the light with. That's what it means when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do not become complacent with your own sin, nor when you see it in your brother or sister, when you see it, not when you're looking for it, when you see it in your brothers and sisters, do not let it lie there. Yesterday, I had the great pleasure of spending about four and a half hours in my yard. And I, I found, I, now I had taken some, prepare, uh, some preparation, and I had put down this stuff called landscaping fabric. And if you don't know what that is, it's just a piece of vinyl that's somewhat felty, and it prevents roots from going down or coming up, which is a great thing to have if you're organizing a garden. Now, weeds are always best plucked the day after they germinate. Um, but I had decided to wait about four or six weeks for this one particular thing. And what it had become, it had become a three-foot-wide uh, clump of grass that had, you know, floated, the seed had floated through the air or a bird probably dropped it or something, and it had germinated, but it had germinated over top of landscaping fabric. And so the root structure was just through mulch, and it was only half an inch deep. And I went to go grab it, and I didn't know what was going to happen, so I grabbed it very tightly, and I mustered all my strength to yank it out, and I almost fell over because it came right up. That is the type of weeding that you ought to be doing in your spiritual walk. You ought to have the grace of God operating in your life that you pick the weeds quickly and that you do not allow the roots to take hold. Allowing the roots to take hold makes the problem much, much worse. And then after that, once you get them all done, get a healthy round of herbicide and you'll be fine. The point is that you ought to be circumspect, not just of your own life, but also your brothers and sisters. So the writer's call to holiness is done in the context of what is coming. And he not only says that the call to holiness is a right response to God's discipline, and God's discipline is a right response to his children, but that you, as a child of God, have joined the assembly of the redeemed, and now he begins to examine who that assembly is in great detail. The writer's calling to holiness is seen in the full force in the light of his understanding of the new covenant. This was what I said earlier when I said most Christians, when they think of the differences between the old and the new covenants, they think the new covenant is more tolerating of, backward, of backsliding. It's more gracious and that the old covenant was less gracious and less uh, you know, permissible. And I believe that this is absolutely contrary to, it, to the way that this writer reasons in this chapter as well as the entire New Testament. The writer makes an argument a fortiori, that is, if the old covenant warnings were reliable, then how much more will the new covenant warnings be reliable? A fortiori just means from the stronger thing. He says, if, if the old covenant warnings were, 
were reliable and they fell in the wilderness, then how much more ought we not to refuse the one who's speaking? Verse 18, he says, for you have not come to what may be touched. If you remember back through the entire letter, the Hebrew writer is contrasting the earthly temple made with hands versus the spiritual temple that exists in heaven and that the Levites made sacrifices which could not deal with sin in an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, but now Christ has by the Holy Spirit ascended into the heavenlies and offered up his own blood in the heavenly temple. And he's contrasting those two things for the entire book, saying that those things which were not made but established by God, those things not made on the earth, not taking physical form, the things which are in the heavens are much re more real and more great and, and more authentic. And so understanding that difference, we see from the very beginning of verse 18, he's saying, this is a greater mountain that you've arrived at. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. This is what is going on at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai with, with Moses. If you're not familiar with the time in the Exodus, that's okay. He summarizes it here saying that there were terrifying things. The mountain was uh, lit with smoke and it was basically shaking under the weight of the holiness of God. And the people in hearing the voice of God, who was at the time only speaking to Moses, they heard the echoes of the voice of Yahweh and were terrified at what they heard. And so the law which came at Sinai proved to be faithful. Those who did not obey Moses fell in the wilderness. Those who did not obey Joshua fell in the entrance to the land. Those who did not obey the law in the land were eventually judged and taken out of the land by exile. Over and over again, the history in our scriptures tell us that the, the warnings given under Moses were true warnings. And so the writer here then says, how much more? We have something that is more real than what can be touched. We have come by the mercies of God to the true heavenly gathering. Therefore, we ought to conduct ourselves all the more in a worthy manner according to that which we've been called to. You and I have been called to participate in the true ecclesia that surrounds the sea of glass mingled with fire. If you look at Revelation 4 and 5, Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah 6, these passages are given to you so that you might understand the holiness of God. And in these passages, we see terrifying things, thunder, lightning, smoke, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Cherubim and seraphim who are they themselves covered with eyes all within and without beholding the holiness of God. They themselves catching on fire because of the consuming nature of that thing that namely that one whom they behold Yahweh himself on the throne. Now in Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees Christ on the throne in a pre-incarnate state. Isaiah simply sees the glory of the Lord. And John in Revelation 4 and 5, he sees again, not only the throne room, but also the one who comes to take a seat on the throne. And this is what they are being shown. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Remember back last week, if you were here last week in, in chapter 11, we saw that they were looking for a city that was to come, right? And it says at the last verse of chapter 11, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or they should not enter in. That is, now that Christ has come, now that he has performed an atonement, he has taken those saints of old and the saints in the new covenant and made them as one people in the true ecclesia, and they have arrived at the city of the living God. He calls it the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, two innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, that is Christ, and those who were born after Christ, that is spiritually born in Christ, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect. What he's saying is that you, the church, have come to the city of the living God. He's not writing this letter to individual Christians, and this is where the traditions of the church are so important. This letter was not passed around on leaflets given to all the Christians to read at home. This letter was read at church meetings. 
This letter would have been first read in that city on the day of the Lord. They may have gone through it in one setting and then over it like we're doing now, chapter by chapter, although the chapters would come a thousand years later. But that's beside the point. The point is that they did not simply give this letter as if this applies to each person. This is applying to the community. That's how we can understand that people can be false or true believers because these things don't apply to each one. They apply to the group. He says, you have all come, not to a particular thing which can be touched, but you've come to this assembly. And this assembly is the city of the living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem and innumerable angels in festal gathering or feastal gathering. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The writer tells them of the wonderful admission of his readers by the Spirit of God into the throne room. And the throne room is the context for this new assembly which God has made in his Son. That is, these are the things which belong to the one true church. As a side note, really quickly, I want to just impress upon you that he says that you have come, past tense, to the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem. When most of you hear that, you think of Revelation 21, and you think of something that's going to happen after the return of Christ, in which the heavenly Jerusalem will come down from heaven. But I want to submit to you that the whole context of Hebrews is that that which was able to be touched the earthly temple, the earthly city is about to pass away because the new has come. And that new thing which came was the church coming down out of heaven, which already took place at the sending of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you are curious about that, I would just encourage you to look at our, our sermons that we gave on the day of Pentecost the last few years in a row. But everything which happens at Sinai by which God called his assembly at first, happens again at the day of Pentecost. A great sound from heaven, fire coming down, a new law being given. Not a new law, but rather the ability to do the law in the first place. John the Apostle, Peter, and Paul argue this way as well. In fact, Paul says that we are, that the two mountains are actually two, you know, the two women are two mountains. The Jerusalem, which is on the earth, is in bondage, but we are from the Jerusalem, which is in heaven. And he says that we are of that one. That is, Christians are already from the heavenly Jerusalem. So likewise, the angels are in festal gathering because there's something to celebrate. The marriage supper of the Lamb was inaugurated and is still being celebrated and will one day be consummated. But it is not something which we're looking forward to only. It is something that's begun and is breaking in on the world. End sidebar. So after identifying the location of the assembly as nothing other than the very throne room of God by which you and I weekly on the Lord's day appear, rising up in the Holy Spirit just as John does in, John, in Revelation 1, being caught up by the Spirit in the Lord's day, we assemble and join the throne room worship in heaven. And in that context, the writer issues a final warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What's the contrary of that? it is possible to refuse the one whom is, who, who is speaking. That there are people who, as I said earlier, have snuck in by another way other than Christ, who are continuing, although they are near the grace of God and are hearing things about the grace of God, even in having some measure of engagement with the word, who do not heed the warning from the one who's speaking. For they, if, and this is that argument a fortiori. This is where he's saying, if they didn't do this back then, then how much more? He says, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this is talking about nothing other than the coming of the kingdom of God. That's why this message is about the unshakable kingdom. God, in sending the Holy Spirit upon the church, forming his new assembly on the earth, shakes the kingdoms of men, just like we see uh, in, in the prophets of old, and he shakes them in order to establish the, the kingdom. This fading away of the temple in Jerusalem is done as the final culmination of the severity and the pronouncement of judgment. 
So the things which are removed are namely those things which have been made. If you want to see this in great detail, look at Hebrews 9, two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, sorry. Verse 27, this, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things which have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In this context, I believe he's speaking of the church, which at this time until the destruction of Jerusalem lived in a generational overlap by which those things which were ready to pass away had not yet vanished, but were already doomed, and the things which were to become more glorious were already here in seed form and were beginning to grow. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The point is this, the kingdom which God brings is his kingdom. It's not your kingdom, it's not my kingdom. We can neither add to it nor hinder it it will ultimately prove effective throughout time. And worship, therefore, you're commanded to worship as those who are invited into God's kingdom. And it includes necessarily thanksgiving, thanksgiving for the kingdom, reverence of the one who is the ruler over the kingdom, and awe. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel sees a vision by which the kingdom of God will come, and it'll come and smash the kingdoms of man as symbolized by a man made with bronze and iron and then clay feet mixed with iron. And this rock comes and it says the rock came and smashed and then it becomes a mountain which fills the whole earth. What did the Hebrew writers say that we've arrived at? The true Mount Zion. We are told to fear God for nothing survives in his kingdom which is not of his kingdom. That is why we are called to the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would deliver us from wrong understandings of your word. We ask you that you would give to us zeal to pursue holiness within our lives, not as something that we have to attain in order to earn your favor, but something that we ought to cooperate with by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding that we would become people who love your scriptures. We ask that you would give us not only knowledge of the New Testament, but knowledge of the Old Testament, that you would allow us to see patterns and ideas that build upon one another, that interpret each other. We pray that you would give to us, Lord, the apostolic hermeneutic. We pray that we would see Jesus Christ glorified, not just in this local church, but in the churches of our city and the churches of our state. We ask you that you would glorify your bride, that you would give her wisdom, that you would make her pure and spotless, Lord, we thank you for this kingdom that is not our invention, that isn't our creation, but rather something that we receive. We pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of the kingdom, and then from that, that you would make us thankful in order that we might worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.